trusting to the girl's skill and making no use of the rudder, he eyed the coming tide with an absorbed attention. So the girl eyed him. But it happened now that a slant of light from the setting sun glanced into the bottom of the boat, and, touching a rotten stain there which bore some resemblance to the outline of a muffled human form, colored it as though with diluted blood. This caught the girl's eye, and she shivered. "'What ails you?' said the man, immediately aware of it, though so intent on the advancing waters. "'I see nothing afloat.' The red light was gone, the shutter was gone, and his gaze, which had come back to the boat for a moment, traveled away again. Wheresoever the strong tide met with an impediment, his gaze paused for an instant. At every mooring chain and rope, at every stationary boat or barge that split the current into a broad arrowhead, at the offsets from the piers of Southwick Bridge, at the paddles of the river steamboats as they beat the filthy water, at the floating logs of timber lashed together lying off certain wharves, his shining eyes darted a hungry look. After a darkening hour or so, suddenly the rudder lines tightened in his hold, and he steered hard towards the Surrey shore. Always watching his face, the girl instantly answered to the action in her sculling. Presently the boat swung round, quivered as from a sudden jerk, and the upper half of the man was stretched out over the stern. The girl pulled the hood of a cloak she wore over her head and over her face, and looking backward so that the front folds of this hood were turned down the river, kept the boat in that direction going before the tide. Until now the boat had barely held her own, and had hovered about one spot, but now the banks changed swiftly, and the deepening shadows and the kindling lights of London Bridge were past and the tears of shipping lay in either hand. It was not until now that the upper half of the man came back into the boat. His arms were wet and dirty, and he washed them over the side. In his right hand he held something, and he washed that in the river, too. It was money. He chinked it once, and he blew upon it once, and he spat upon it once. For luck, he hoarsely said, before he put it in his pocket. Lizzie. The girl turned her face towards him with a start and rode in silence. Her face was very pale. He was a hook-nosed man, and with that and his bright eyes and his ruffled head bore a certain likeness to a roused bird of prey. Take that thing off your face. She put it back. Here and give me hold of the skulls. I'll take the rest of the spell. No, no, father, no. I can't indeed. Father, I cannot sit so near it. He was moving towards her to change places, but her terrified expostulation stopped him, and he resumed his seat. What hurt can it do you? None, none, but I cannot bear it. It's my belief you hate the sight of the very river. I, I do not like it, father. As if it wasn't your living as if it wasn't meat and drink to you. 
At these latter words the girl shivered again, and for a moment paused in her rowing, seeming to turn deadly faint. It escaped his attention, for he was glancing over the stern at something the boat had in tow. How can you be so thankless to your best friend, Lizzie? The very fire that warmed you when you were a baby was picked out of the river alongside the coal barges. The very basket that you slept in, the tide washed ashore. The very rockers that I put it upon to make a cradle of it, I cut out of a piece of wood that drifted from some ship or other. Lizzie took her right hand from the skull it held and touched her lips with it, and for a moment held it out lovingly towards him. Then, without speaking, she resumed her rowing as another boat of similar appearance, though in rather better trim, came out from a dark place and dropped softly alongside. In luck again?